the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 22. Thank you, choir. Thank you, praise team. Thank you, Bruce and Brian. Thank you for worshiping. And may we continue to worship with our ears as we worship with our voices. It's amazing how sometimes some of the smallest passages of Scripture can be packed with so much power. It's like nitroglycerin. It just takes a tiny little bit. This little 10-verse story of Jesus and the Sadducees is so packed that I want us to really take the next few minutes that we have together and unload it as best we can. One of the things I think every one of us is guilty of many, many, many times, maybe for some of us all the time, but for all of us at least often, is the fact that we read the Scriptures so shallowly. Like many of you, I grew up, I had the pen for 14 years in a row reading through the entire Bible in a year. I was brought up in a church where that was a badge of honor. You actually wore a thing on your, because in the church I grew up in, if you were 12 years old, you still wore a suit and tie. And on your lapel, there was a pen to say how many years you had read through the Bible. And that was my badge of honor. But I'd never meditated one time on God's Word, not once. I read, 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 read. And by God's grace, periodically, He would pour something into me. I had to stop. But most of the time, I had to get to the next chapter. And now that I'm old, can I hear an amen from my children? Now that I'm old, 17 verses a day, if I'm lucky. It'll take me eight years probably to read through the Bible. Started last November, I'm in Leviticus chapter 18. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your father's, mother's, brother's daughter. That's Leviticus 18, you know. But I think sometimes we do not let the Holy Spirit help us to dig deeply enough into His Word. And we just fly over things. So this morning, I want us to take just a few moments out of our time together and really dig down deep. It won't take us long to do it. But I think it will be a good example for all of us because it was for me. I started out exactly where I know you are on this passage. I've, most of you. And then the Holy Spirit said, oh, but you missed it. Look right there. Wait, look at that verb or that pronoun. It's like, wow, I didn't think about that. Now you go tell my people so they will learn to read more carefully my word when they have it in front of them. You see, this was the whole issue with the Sadducees. The Sadducees, Matthew tells us, did not believe in the resurrection. You go, well, okay. So they were liberals. They didn't believe in life after death. They didn't believe in the resurrection. They didn't believe in eternal life. They must have been the liberals. But no, they were the conservatives. 
They were the ones who believed that you read the Bible literally exactly as it is written. When the Bible speaks, Sadducees speak. When the Bible is silent, Sadducees are silent. And they were so strict, they only believed that the first five books of the Bible were actually the real Bible, at least from the Old Testament. The rest of it was just writings and history and stuff like that. But, the, but if you want to know God's word, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. And so because they could find not one nary a verse in the Old Testament that said, and you shall live forever, or later you will be resurrected, they said there's no resurrection. There's, it's not there. We can't proof text it in the five books of Moses. Job, psh. Daniel, huh. the Psalms, songs. You know how those songwriters are. They're always elaborating things, you know. Go to Moses. Not there. So they were not the liberals of their day. They were the conservatives of their day. And they gloried in the way that they took the Bible literally, word for word, letter by letter, literally. What does it say? What does it not say? And it was only exaggerated, I guess I can say, because of the fact that this Jesus, this teacher from Galilee, psh, Galilee, half-breeds, had come down to their turf and was saying, you kill this body and in three days I'll be resurrected. <laughs> Fool. There's no such thing as resurrection. Moses never talked about resurrection. There's no such thing. You live this life. The only way you live forever is in your children. You pass on your heritage to your children. That's how you live. Other than that, when you die, you cease to exist. We'll show him. Teacher, we have a question for you, they said. Look with me. Let's read the passage again. Moses said that if a man dies having no children, his brother is to marry his wife and raise up offspring for his brother. This is what we know of as leveret marriage. This was designed to do two things. Number one, it was designed to protect widows, especially if their husbands died young. And they had no children, so they had no one that could come along to help take care of them when they got older. So what would happen is the, the, the man who died, his next youngest brother, would marry the woman, and the first child that they would have would actually be named after the dead brother, so that his name, secondly, would live on in the genealogy. Now, that's just another reminder to us in the 21st century world that, that in, in the ancient world, biology was not nearly as important as tradition. As we say, well, now, but biologically, he's not that man's child. Well, we know that. They knew that too. But it was in honor of that brother, in memory of that dead brother, that child would be given the name of his dead father, and he would carry on the genealogy of that dead man. So it protected the wife, the widow, and it also kept the man's name alive in Israel. Well, here's the deal, Jesus. Verse 25. There were seven brothers among us. You think there were really seven brothers? This is probably just a, kind of making the story up. They sat around going, Psh, we'll get him with this one. Watch this, guys. There were seven brothers among us, and the oldest one married a woman, and he died. With no offspring, he left his wife to his brother. The same happened to the second also, the third to all seven, and then last of all, the woman died. Now, if you're reading with any uh, savvy at all, you can hear the, 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 the scorn in this whole story. 
What they want to know is, if a woman had more than one husband, whose wife would she be in the resurrection, if there is in fact a resurrection? Well, obviously there's not because this is an unanswerable question. So they could have had a man with two, uh, two brothers, right? It could have just been two guys. The first guy married her. He died with no children. The second man married her. He died with no children. Then she died. Which one would she be married to? Oh, but no, 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 no. We're going to make this thing just totally ludicrous. Okay, we're going to have seven brothers, and they all die. So who's she married to? Oh, great wise teacher who says you're going to be resurrected. Tell us. Now, in Jesus' answer, I want us to go at three levels. I want us to look at three levels. The first one is going to be in, kind of at the surface level. Second one gets a little bit deeper, and the third is going to be an application. So basically, I have two applicable theology lessons and one theological application, all right? The first one has to do with the way he actually answers their question. Look at what Jesus says in verse 29. You are deceived. <laughs> or sometimes he says, you're wrong. You're just wrong. You're deceived. Because you don't know the scriptures or the power of God. For in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. Notice he doesn't say they will be angels. You don't get wings when you go to heaven. You don't get halos when you go to heaven. You don't fly around. He says they'll be like the angels in the sense that the angels do not procreate. Angels do not marry. Angels do not have baby angels. Okay? No matter how many of those little diaper commercials you watch. Okay? And so he says, in the resurrection, there will not be marriage. Because even marriage in this life is a temporary relationship. It won't last out into eternity. It'll be some, it will be improved upon, I think I can say. Your marriage may have been made in heaven, but your marriage wasn't made for heaven. There is not a woman on this planet that I adore more than I do my wife. And when we get to heaven someday, she will no longer be my wife, but I will love her even more than I do now. can't believe that, but I will. And we will all love each other with a love that we can't even begin to imagine. Now, the closest we can come is to that absolute, unconditional love that we have for our spouses, even when they sin against us. We're so well ready and willing to forgive. And then to think about what it will be like in eternity when there is no sin for us to forgive each other of, no offenses, no crossing of lines, and then we will be able just to love one another for all of eternity. And it reminds us, for those of us who are married, it reminds us that when we look at our marriages, listen very carefully, this is very, very important, not because I'm saying it, but because it's God's word. God's work in Herman and Shirley's life, in Steve and Sharon's life, in Phil and Linda's life, in Christopher and Amanda's life, is to bring each one of us into the shape of Christ, to move us forward so that when we die and our sanctification is completed, we will be in Christ's image, but he is working in us. And in order to help that happen, he brings along a life partner to walk with us through that process. We become God's tools to lovingly and humbly help each other grow in Christ's likeness. 
But the model, where's Christine Miller? Where's Christine? There you are. Christine, you are the model of eternity. Singleness will be the model in eternity. We will all be loving each other as brothers and sisters. I won't have to have one life partner. We will all be partners for all of eternity. And so for those of us who are married, it is a reminder that God has given us those partners to help us fulfill what he wants to do in our lives, which is why Paul Tripp is so insistent on making sure that our vertical relationship is right before we worry about our horizontal relationship. So first he answers that question, but it doesn't stop there. Then he goes on. Because really, so often, this is where we stop with this passage. We're so infatuated about, well, I wonder what heaven's going to be like. I wonder what we're going to do while we're there. I wonder if we'll sing or, or, or play instruments or whatever. You know what we're going to do in heaven? You want me to tell you? I, can tell, I can answer that question for you. You know what we're going to do in heaven? Are you ready? I can tell you. Write it down. Here's what we're going to do in heaven. Whatever God wants us to do. And I don't mean that to be funny. If God wants us to play instruments, guess what? We'll be able to play instruments. If God wants us to say, well, I know we're going to sing. It says in the Bible we're going to sing. Whatever it is that God wants us to do, we're going to do it with great joy. But that's not even the major point. He just used marriage to underscore what he wanted to say about the resurrection. So then when he goes on and keeps talking, he says, verse 31, Now, concerning the resurrection of the dead, haven't you read what was spoken to you by God? I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. He wants to talk to them about resurrection. Jesus could have taken any number of paths to have done this. He could have gone back to creation. He could have gone to Genesis 1 and 2. How God took the dirt, the dust of the ground, brought it together, formed a man, breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living soul. Don't you believe the God that could do that could make somebody come alive again after death? Well, it makes perfect sense to me. He could have gone to some of those other passages that I just mentioned in Daniel and Isaiah and the Psalms and other places. He could have even said, a couple of weeks ago I was up on a mountain with Peter, James, and John. Go ask them who they saw up there with me. Moses and Elijah. Hmm. Moses and Elijah, huh? They can tell you firsthand, eyewitness, that the dead are not dead for eternity. They are alive. But Jesus didn't do that. Jesus was at his best. Of course, Jesus was always at his best. But Jesus was at his best in this. Number one, he picked a verse that came from the books of the Bible that they honored most highly. Went to Exodus. But not just any verse in the, in, in the Pentateuch, not just any verse in those five books. He went to the one that was basically there, John 3.16, okay? Probably next to Deuteronomy chapter 6, Shema, the hero Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Next to that, Exodus chapter 3. 500 years after Abraham, God calls Moses over to a burning bush and says to him in Exodus chapter 3, verse 6, I am the God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob. Now, many, many people have built an entire theology on, in fact, he said am instead of was. And there's some merit in that. If, if Moses, I mean, if Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob no longer existed because when they died, they ceased to exist, he would have said, I was the God of Abraham, I was the God of Isaac, I was the God of Abraham, and now I'm the God of you, Moses. But that's not the way the Sadducees read this verse. You see, for the Sadducees, this verse from Exodus chapter 3 was the core of the concept of the covenant between God and his people. 
This was God's covenant statement. I am the God of the children of Abraham. I am their God. They are my people. Okay. All right, Pastor, we're there. Move on. So here's the deal. If God establishes a covenant with you or with me, and God lasts for eternity, how long will the covenant last? For eternity, which means I have to continue living, right? Because if I die, who won, God or death? Death won. And is God then sovereign? No. Death can look God in the eye and say, you can have them as long as they're on earth, but the minute they die, they belong to me, and they cease to exist. And God says, not on my watch. I have made a covenant with them, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. How long? Forever. And we, who are part of the new Jerusalem, the new Israel, the new children of Abraham, his covenant is with us. You see, there's so much more to that than an am versus a was. I mean, that's a good way to start, and that's where I was going to be until about six weeks ago. When suddenly it dawned on me, this is a covenant statement. This ties God's promise and his own authority as the sovereign God of the universe to my eternal life. So if you're ever doubting what's going to happen to you when you die, let me give you a word of encouragement. Just put that aside. Because the same God who could bring you to life spiritually will keep you alive till death us do part, God says to his bride. And let me ask you, when's God going to die? Never. That's the second level. The first level is the issue of marriage. The second level is how do we know that the resurrection is real? How do we know that eternal life is real? If we didn't know anything else, we would know that God is a God of promise, a God of covenant. We know that the covenant will last forever, which means we must last forever also. And all God's people said, amen. Third level, third thing, now the application, and then we'll be done. Two points of theology. All human relationships are temporary. The only relationship that lasts forever is the relationship we have with our Father. Number two, the resurrection is real because God is the one who made the promise and God will never die, and so neither shall we. Number three, and this is the one that I think is probably the most important for me. It is, it, is, it is an extrapolation, I guess I can say, or an application from this text. So please hear it that way. I grew up in a tradition like many of you where an obscure verse in Deuteronomy about homosexuality and transgenderism was turned into a way to make girls feel bad if they wore a pair of Bermuda shorts or a pair of blue jeans while they were out working in the yard. I won't ask for a show of hands how many of you were taught that if a woman puts on a man's garment, it's an abomination to God. So women, you just don't even think about putting those pants on. Now, it's easy for me to caricature that, but at the time I was growing up, that was as true as John 3.16. We were going to a cold night on a football game. My mother would put on a pair of pants and then cover it over with a long skirt. But beloved, if we're not careful, 
in our conservatism, in our desire to be people of the book, we do live under the authority of God's word. And we need to hear what it has to say. And we need to understand, it is not our private interpretation. What does the scripture say? But when a lost world says, oh, I know about you Baptists. You believe the Bible is literally true. Be careful. Be careful. We believe that the principles of Scripture, the teaching of Scripture, are absolutely true and will never change. But does that mean that we believe that every single word in the Bible is literally true? Do we believe there really was a sword coming out of Jesus' mouth in Revelation chapter 2? Of course we don't. We believe that represents his word. His word is the sword. So just please understand, we know what we mean by that, okay? But I also understand how easy it is for us to take something that we read in Scripture, we interpret that, and maybe accurately so, but then we begin extrapolating out of that certain ways in which we have to act based on our practice based on the principle. And I'm not even going to give you an example because I don't want to tread on anybody's toes. I don't, I'm not, I don't want to pick on anybody because I have them, you have them. Things where we've gone to Scripture, we see what it says, we believe that we understand what it means, and then we begin translating that out. Now, so I, I said this to somebody the other day, and they said, now, Pastor, you've got to be careful, because if you just say, well, you know what, maybe that's what it means today, maybe it won't mean that tomorrow. I'm not saying that at all. The principles of God's Word never change, but the application of God's Word, let me just go ahead and put my neck in the noose now, is constantly changing. Why? Because the world is constantly changing. I could take you today to an article where a very well-known and very well-loved Southern Baptist pastor preached against the evils, the sin, the abomination of organ transplant surgery. To take the liver out of one person and put it into another person's body. To take the heart out of someone and put it in a, Well, see, in that generation, in that day, that was seen as we're playing God. God has determined the person should die of a heart attack. We say, no, no, you're not going to die. We're going to put a new heart in you. How dare you be so arrogant as to think you can go against God's plan? We look back on it 100 years later, and we're going, okay, they just didn't understand. It's just a medical procedure. So we are constantly growing in our understanding of what God's Word teaches us, but we also have to be able to interpret it to a new generation. So all I want to say to us is, we should hold unapologetically, but gently, the truths that we are so convinced we understand from God's Word. Matter of fact, in just a couple months we're going to be in Acts. And we're going to get to a clear example of that. And I want you to remember, because I'm going to refer back to today in about eight weeks, ten weeks. We're going to be in June, and we're going to be in Acts. And we're going to talk about Cornelius and circumcision. Okay? So get your minds ready now. But my point I want to say to you is, and this is my application, and with this we're going to close. Let us affirm that God's word is our authority and our only authority. Let us also understand that that word is always enlivened, is always made real and alive to us through the indwelling Holy Spirit. So when we, who are Baptists, believe with all of our heart in believer's baptism, profession of faith, water baptism, by immersion, 
Let us not cast aspersions on our brothers and sisters that are right now worshiping about 100 yards behind us. I always get my directions mixed up. 100 yards behind us who practice covenant baptism of their children, our Presbyterian brothers and sisters. Do I agree with their theology on that? No, I don't. Does that mean they're all going to go to hell? I certainly hope not. So I hold what I believe is true, but I also understand I better hold it kind of humbly. Because we may get to heaven, I find out I was the one that was wrong. But God's grace was still sufficient for me too. So let us always beware. We always are careful about Pharisaism. Let's beware of Sadduceism. That we not become so focused down on how we interpret God's word that we can't let the Holy Spirit speak to us. Because you see, we end up then being the very same thing that Jesus said to this group. He said, you don't know the scriptures and you don't know the power of God. May that never be said of us. I think I better stop there. Because that's all the Lord wanted me to tell you. So that's what I'm going to stop. I'm just going to turn this off right now. We want so much to be in control. We want so much to be able to be the one holding the cudgel, the hammer. Well, by golly, this is what we believe. And if you don't believe it, wham, wham, wham. What we better say is, as humbly as we know how, after searching the scriptures, this is what we believe God would want us to do. What God would want us to teach. But we are always open to the Holy Spirit teaching us and helping us to refine that and clarify that. I know some of you grew up and you were taught that Baptists are not part of the Reformation. Well, I got news for you. That was something they told us to make us feel good about ourselves, okay? We really are part of the Reformation movement. Baptists actually started before 1518 or 1517, but we became a part of the Reformation movement. And one of the, one of the articles of the Reformation is that the church should always be reforming. We should always be refreshing ourselves as we see what God's word says to us, to today's lost world, and then respond in accordance with what it says and what it tells us we should do. Don't put too much emphasis on our world today that you send it over into the world of eternity. Don't ever forget that the reason we can have absolute assurance that we have eternal life it's because the one that promised us will live forever. And he says, you will be my bride until death parts us. And number three, let us hold fast, but with humility, truths that we profess. So that we can continue reaching out to a lost world with gospel. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for what it teaches us. When you began pouring this into my heart, I was confused. But I really truly believe that the principles of your word guide us, rule us, direct our actions. But the way that we practice those principles 
may shift from time to time as your Holy Spirit opens up new vistas of opportunity for us. Those poor Sadducees were so tied into what they thought your word said that they couldn't understand your power and how you work. May we never be guilty of that. And when we are, because we probably will, may we be humbly repentant and may we submit ourselves to you and to your lordship. Now, Father, as we sing a song of response, there's any number of things you could be doing in our hearts and lives. I don't even want to try to enumerate them. All I ask you, Father, is to move in the hearts of your people. Whatever it is that you're doing in our lives, I pray that you will help us to respond with a yes, with a life of surrender to you. For it's in Jesus' name we ask it.